the opportunity for you to decide exactly where you want to be. This class is a study of the book of John. It's the same class that was taught over in the annex last quarter. Over in the annex, um, Jonathan is teaching, again, a study of our modern um, ethical issues, so moral issues. So maybe you missed some of those classes. They're being offered again. And hopefully we can say basically on the same schedule that we had before. In addition to that, uh, understand that there's a ladies' class that is starting tonight over just a few steps away in the chapel. So ladies, if you'd like to participate in that piece, you just go right on, and I'm sure there's a fantastic study taking place in there. I'm going to start by just going over some folks that I know who are sick or recuperating, and if you'd like to add somebody to that list, we'll do that. Irene Baker and Laura Galloway's dad, John Dryden, are both um, in end-stage cancer, so keep them in your prayers. Sandy Bonham is uh, ill with cancer. She was getting a pick line in and going to begin some chemotherapy, so at least there's some progress that way. Her brother Rodney, however, passed away, and the arrangements are at uh, Kessler Funeral Home in Baldwin on Saturday. Visitation will be at 10 a.m. and the funeral's at 11 there's also going to be a meal here at the Annex, and if you can help with that, I think there's a sign-up sheet out there in the foyer. Martha Eaton had a CT scan done on her foot. Apparently the bones are in place like they ought to be, but they're going to reevaluate in about six weeks to decide if they need to do further surgery. Austin Wentz is doing better and has begun chemotherapy. Randy Stutz has made a fabulous recovery, although I don't see him back there. Okay, he's here. He's here. Okay. Well, we're, we're just thankful that he's doing so well. Joan Mormon is recovering from her shoulder injury and uh, apparently doing well. Her sister Norma is also very ill, and Luther's the one taking care of them. He's just wanting them to get well enough they can cook. <laughs> Two of them together can make a good cook, so we pray that'll happen. Remember Verlin Davis, who has Alzheimer's. Brian Rowland and John, uh, Ronnie Johnson both have foot problems that they're dealing with, trying to nurse them. Uh, Linda's doing better uh, from her heart uh, treatment, and we're thankful for that. Virginia Mormon, I talked with her today. She's planning on being here on Sunday. Isn't that great? So we'll look forward to seeing her then. Remember the uh, Deglers as they're recovering from their house fire. Remember Colin Farr, who is making a great recovery. We pray he'll have a full recovery. Sue Mason has been dealing with COVID. She was hoping to be here tonight. She plans to be here Sunday, so we'll look forward to seeing her too. Uh, Grady Wigginton, who we've been praying for for a couple of weeks. He is an elder at Hillcrest. He passed away from his sickness. Uh, arrangements for Grady are also on Saturday. His Funeral is at 2 p.m. at Waters Funeral Home in Baldwin. Visitation starts at noon. Terry Green, who's Ricky's older brother, had surgery for cancer on Monday. They couldn't remove all the cancer. He's being referred to another group, awaiting to find out what the next step is. 
Uh, as far as the, the surgery, though, he's doing well and looking forward to additional treatment. Our daughter Casey is having a C-section tomorrow morning to deliver our next, I say next, I don't want it to end, but our next grandbaby. So tonight is the last night that poor Millie's going to be an only child. But uh, we're just thankful for God's blessings that way, and we, we would appreciate you remembering them. And then there's still a lot of people with COVID, although it seems like the number's coming down and people are returning. So we're very grateful for that. Do you have anybody else? Jerry Short. Gary. Okay, Gary Short. Okay. All right, let's have a song and then we will pray together. Number 577. 577. You are Lord of creation and Lord of my life, Lord of the land and the sea. You were Lord of the heavens before there was time, and Lord of all lords you will be. We bow down and we worship you, Lord, we bow down and we worship you, Lord, we bow down. Father in heaven, thank you so much for a beautiful day today and for all the rich blessings that you've showered upon us. We're thankful that our health is sufficient, that we can be here, and we count that a great privilege, but we're aware of a lot of people who are sick, who remain ill because of the virus or who are recovering from uh, surgeries or injuries or other sicknesses, and we're praying for their recovery. We pray our Comfort on Irene Baker and John Dryden. We pray for health for Sandy Bonham. And we pray comfort for the Goldstein family in Rodney's death. We ask your blessings continually on Martha Eaton that she'll recover and her foot will do well. We pray for Austin Wentz that he'll get stronger every day. Bless Randy Stutz and his knee uh, replacement surgery and the recovery of that, and we're just astounded he's doing so well, and we pray your continued blessings. Bless Joan and her sister Norma as they're recovering from uh, sickness and, and injury. Bless Verlin Davis in her Alzheimer's. We pray for Brian and Ronnie as they both have severe foot issues, and we pray that they'll be able to recover to a good degree. 
We pray your blessings on Linda Beard and Virginia Mormon as they're recovering from treatments for heart ills, and we pray full recovery for both of them. We pray for the Daglers and their recovery in the house fire, and we just thank you, Lord, for the outpouring of generosity and kindness toward them. We pray you're glorified in all of that. We ask your continued blessings on Colin, and we pray that his diagnosis was correct and that he's going to have a full recovery. Bless Sue Mason and others who have COVID. We pray they can recover and be back with us. Be with the Wigginton family as Grady's passed away and comfort them. Bless Terry Green as he's trying to find remedy for his cancer. And we're thankful for the surgery he had, but we pray that he can truly find um, the treatment that's going to rid his body of this terrible disease. Ask your blessings on Gary Short, who's having heart surgery, that it'll be a success. And please be with Casey as she delivers a baby tomorrow. If it's your will that that takes place, we pray that both mother and the baby will be healthy and that all will go well. We pray, Lord, that you'll bless us as we're starting a new study in your word. And we pray that this study will be an encouragement and blessing to all of us and help us more than anything else to develop a strong, ironclad belief in your Son as truly the Son of God. Help us to have the Word uh, make that impression on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so as advertised, we're going to begin a study in the Gospel of John. Someone asked, are you doing all the studies in the books of John? Well, that would be, you know, the big Gospel of John, and then first and second, third John, and then also the book of Revelation. No, we're not biting all that off. We will have studies in those books subsequently. I don't know which year those will be in, but they're on down the road. So be looking forward to that. This study, however, will be significant in that it has a very direct purpose. And we will be discovering that. In fact, tonight, my intention is to think purely in terms of uh, authorship, we'll think in terms of, you know, the purpose of the book, and then we'll see how the book of John presents Jesus. Well, let's think about authorship for a minute. You say, Ken, it doesn't really matter who the human author is. I know that the scriptures are inspired of God. And again, peace, absolutely right. That's what gives us the confidence in the scriptures, right? When I pick up the Bible and I read those words... It doesn't necessarily mean anything to me that there tends to be a flavor with regard to scriptures or a certain style associated with them. You will read commentaries and scholars who go into great depth into the style of the writer and compare all the different books that are attributed to them and do so for the purpose of giving structure to the writing. All that's kind of interesting to you English majors, but to those of us who are wanting to know the will of God, that isn't that significant to us. But what's interesting about this book in particular, although it bears the name John, there isn't any mention in this book of John actually writing it. Now, I will say that there isn't anybody who says, Well, John couldn't have possibly written it. In fact, I don't know of any 
reputable scholar who denies the fact that John is the author. But I think it's interesting that when you read the New Testament scriptures, if you're just going to say John wrote this, well, there are a lot of people out there who carry the name John. Which of these Johns is it? There are actually five of those in the New Testament scriptures that are of import. Probably the most famous of those is John the Baptist, right? Have you heard of him? Uh, Why is John the Baptist not a very good candidate for the book of John? Okay, (laughs) unfortunately, unfortunately, John the Baptist died really before the work of Jesus really got rolling to its fullness. So, you know, uh, not not a good choice. So I have to throw John the Baptist out. There was also John Mark, who was an associate of Paul and Barnabas. And many people think on down the line became closely associated with Peter. Uh, Why is John Mark not necessarily a good candidate? You know who John Mark is, right? The guy that was rejected and found to be useful. I'll give you this little caveat. When you study Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you may have found that authorship is attributed again to different ones, like Matthew attributed to Matthew, Luke attributed to Luke, and also the book of Acts attributed to Luke, the physician. The book of Mark. Okay, now, which one of the apostles was Mark? Well, you go down through the list or you sing the song and you realize, wait a second, Mark wasn't an apostle. Who is Mark? Most people attribute the writing of Mark to this guy, John Mark. John Mark, later being an associate with Peter, a lot of people think that Mark actually, not Peter's writing, but an account taken or penned by John Mark, attributable to Peter's experiences as a witness of Jesus, and of course, all of that brought together by inspiration of God. That's often easy to see, isn't it, with those three Gospels, because they're practically word for word each other with, with a few exceptions along the way. So John Mark, probably, probably not a good candidate. He's already got one. Let's see, there is John, who was the father of Peter. Remember, Simon bar Jonah. Jonah is another uh, iteration of the name John. Uh, Probably not, because he doesn't really factor into the events of the books. There is another lesser-known character. In fact, if I hadn't done a search, I wouldn't even know who he was. But this is a John that's mentioned in Acts chapter 4 and verse 6. He's mentioned there in a group of people along with the high priest. Most people assume he was probably a member of the Sanhedrin. So again, especially the group he was hanging out with, not a good candidate. The only real viable option that's left is John, who was the son of Zebedee, who also had a brother, James. That would be John the what? The, The apostle. In fact, John would have had a good vantage point of Jesus in his work. Why? Not just that he was an apostle, but what else? Okay, we say, we tend to say he was part of the inner circle, and that was with what other two people, typically? Okay, Peter and James. So 
when all the major big events like the Transfiguration takes place, there those three are. And, and most people think that John, with the experience that he had and the relationship that he had with Jesus, most likely is the writer of this book. Nobody that I know of disputes that unless it's you. And if it's you, peace. Well, let's think about... Pardon? I uh, had a brother named James and Jonas, Jonah, so yes, yes, that's true. Okay. But most likely, again, uh, not him, simply because where is he? In fact, he is among a, a group of people closely aligned with Jesus that didn't actually even believe that he was the Son of God. And this book emphasizes to the greatest degree the development of belief. Okay, now, if it is John, the apostle, which most people think it is, then there are some things that are interesting about John. One is, John was a disciple first of what person? Remember John, John the Baptist? Oh, no, it's complicated. John's and John's and John's everywhere. But yeah, John, the apostle, actually began as a disciple of John the Baptist. John directed John and uh, his brother James and uh, Peter and Andrew, uh, kind of the first little group of disciples. He directed them to Jesus, or with the help of brothers, uh, you'll see a description of that in John chapter 1, verses 35 to 40. Okay, so he's a disciple. Uh, most people think of John in the light of a statement, two statements, in fact, that are made in John chapter 21, verse 20, and also verse 24. And that is that this particular one, what we're going to identify as John, was one that Jesus, what? What emotion? He loved. So there is that close, tight relationship. Did he love everybody? Oh, well, of course. Uh, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. No doubt about that. However, in terms of relationships and emotional closeness, uh, apparently John, John is the one. Now, John, along with James, what occupation did they have? Okay, they're fishermen. But they're also actually partners, not just with their father, but they were partners with Peter and Andrew. You'll see a description of that, and that also shows the close-knit relationship of them in Luke chapter 5 and verse 10. Okay, James and John have a special description given to them. They are referred to this in Mark chapter 3 and verse 17. They are the sons of thunder. Anybody remember why they were called that? <laughs> okay. Uh, Luke chapter 9 and verse 54, those boys were there evangelizing a Samaritan village, and the Samaritans said, no, get out of here. And so they... We'll show them, right? Bring down fire from heaven. And it's like, whoa, you know, back off a little bit. Turn that thing down. Uh, what does that tell you about John? Bold. Um, I'm thinking excitable. Usually when I think of excitable, I think about Peter. But stop, wait a second. Who is this group of guys that are around Jesus? And we often put it on Peter, but... 
James and John, they're pretty fiery too? Literally. <laughs> Literally so. Okay. Uh, however, as you go on through the life of Jesus to the end, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, there's another special thing. And that's described in John chapter 19, verses 25, 26, and 27. That is where Jesus entrusts the care of his mother to whom? To John, to this disciple, this apostle that Jesus loved so much. And then, think about John, okay, responsibility now as an apostle. Uh, Jesus has ascended the Father. Uh, the church is being established in Galatians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, John, along with several others, is referred to as a pillar in the church. So what does that tell you about the kind of person he was spiritually and about the work, the conviction that he had related to the church? Strong, right? He's all about it. Okay, so that, that's a little bit about uh, authorship. If you wanted to look at the purpose of the book, it's actually stated there at the end of the book in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And truly, Jesus, right? Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Okay, this is the purpose statement of the book. It is a reflection on all that had taken place in the book. And in fact, the last two verses of the book itself, last two verses of this chapter, um, chapter 21, actually stress the fact that, you know what, if we were going to write everything that Jesus had said and done, well, the world wouldn't contain the volumes. So what John does is what he says he does right here in this, these two verses of Scripture. And I want us to emphasize the three words that are stressed in this text. The word signs, these particular signs, he says, were designed for the second word, belief, the development of belief that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and that believing you may have, and here's the third word, life in his name. Okay, the book of John, big book, lots of stories, lots of interaction, conversation. We are not going through this book verse by verse. What we're trying to do is to accomplish the purpose of the book. So we're going to divide this book up into what this verse stresses are the important factors of the book. We're going to talk about the signs that are given in the book. We're going to talk about the development of belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the things that will lead us to that, the witnesses in particular that testify to that fact. And then we're going to look at the life as is manifested in Jesus' statements about who he is. I am and then there are seven I am statements. Actually, in each one of those categories, interestingly enough, there are sevens. For instance, uh, let's just kind of review very quickly some of the things that we might discover. So if we're talking about signs, first of all, what is a sign? What does a sign do? What's its purpose? 
Okay, <laughs> signs help you see stuff. I mean, that's, that's true. Signs tend to prove or to authenticate something. In this case, this book is going to stress those particular signs that give proof to what fact? Jesus is the Son of God, going to give proof. They will authenticate by his participation in the working of these signs that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. John, in the end of the book, said, man alive, if we wrote down everything he did, we wouldn't be able to contain all... If you're going to develop belief in somebody, are they going to have time to read all the books that the whole world could contain? Shake your head this way. No, of course not. But what if we chose seven powerful signs that demonstrate beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Son of God? Would that be helpful? Well, of course it would be. We could look at them in detail, which you and I will do together, and then we'll be able to draw out those elements that just, man, they, when you look at that, you can't help but walk away with an understanding and a deep belief that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, I mentioned that there are seven of those, and if you're keeping notes, which I hope you'll do throughout our study, you'll want to reference these as we go along. The very first of those signs that Jesus did was when he turned the water into wine. That's in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. That demonstrates for us Jesus' power over quality. Because in the end, those who knew wine realized it was, it was the very best. In fact, there's the accusation of them leaving the best for last. The second of those signs is when Jesus heals the nobleman's son. And that's in chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. Now, this is going to be a matter of Jesus' power over distance because what we discover is that Jesus heals this guy when this son, when he's 20 miles away. So that's kind of a fascinating, uh, impressive thing that happens. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 18, there's the healing of the man with the infirmity. And we're going to say that this is Jesus' power over time because this guy had this infirmity for 38 years. And now Jesus is able to relieve his issue. In chapter 6, we actually have two signs. The first of these in verses 1 through 15 is where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Now, what's significant about this is that of all the miracles that are recorded in the Scriptures, there are only two miracles that are covered by all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One of those is obvious, and that would be the miracle of Jesus doing what? There's my hint. <laughs> of being resurrected from the dead, right? I mean, that, that is our foundational miracle. Uh, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, what about our faith? It's no good. It's, it's worthless. It's vain. It's futile. The other, the one that God thought was so extraordinary that he recorded in all the Gospels is this one here in chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. And we'll be looking at that one. This one demonstrates Jesus' power over quantity. 
the ability to feed all of those people with so very little. The latter part of the chapter, chapter 6, beginning at verse 16 and going through verse 21, is the one I think is pretty extraordinary, and that is when Jesus is walking on the water. So that demonstrates for us Jesus' power over nature. In chapter 9, we have another extraordinary healing, and that is the healing of the blind man. And it's a big story. It goes from verse 1 all the way through verse 41. And then, kind of like, kind of the, I guess, the, the precursor to the resurrection of Jesus is the sign that we have in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, from verse 1 all the way through verse 44, is the description of the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Of course, that demonstrates Jesus' power over death. All of those signs were designed with one purpose in mind. Jesus did a lot of miracles. In fact, in some of these miracles, you'll see other miracles being done, but those with the specific import, the purpose of developing belief in us, are described in great detail with the purpose of kind of sealing that thing up. You, when you walk away from it, you're studying that, you, you can't help but conclude with all the evidence that's given there that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, those are signs. Um, what, about, what about belief? What is, what is belief? Some people would say it's mental assent. I concur. I believe. Well, that kind of belief does what exactly? It doesn't do anything. It does nothing. It asserts, I believe. I'm, you know, put me in the category of believer, uh, but there's no challenge to it. What we're going to find here in this book is not just those who tag along with Jesus or who feel good being connected with Jesus. He is kind of, you know, the latest thing. So I want Jesus. Not, not that. These are not, what you know, and, and no offense if you have bumper stickers or T-shirts or buttons that you wear that say you love Jesus. That's fine. Peace. But I hope you understand that just having a bumper sticker or just having a T-shirt or a pin, that doesn't make you a faithful, believing Christian. It's easy to wear those things when there is no challenge to it. But what about when the challenges come? What we're looking at is not just simple mental assent. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We're looking at a condition in which a person doesn't simply accept that he's the Son of God as though it were handed down to them generationally. You know, I believe because my parents believe, because my grandparents, my great... Not that. But this is a belief in facts that have been put on display. Facts that are irrefutable. I believe because I have heard the testimony of the witnesses. Those people who actually were there and experienced it, I am, I am basing my belief on what they have to say. Now what's great about the book of John is that John lays out for us as though he were putting Jesus on trial. He lays out for us tremendous witnesses to the reality that Jesus is the Son of God. 
Now, five of those are found in chapter 5, and two of them are found in chapter 15. The first of these in chapter 5 at verse 31 is none other than Jesus himself. I mean, if Jesus is the Son of God, who better to testify of that? Now, those who hear him testify that he's the Son of God, boy, they come at him. You, you know, that's not valid. And Jesus is like, you know what? That's fine. I'll go along with your way of doing things, but I'm just telling you, by virtue of the fact that I am the Son of God, my testimony is true whether you accept it or not. And to me, you know, if, if I'm reading it, I'm like, yeah, way to go, Jesus. I'm with you. That's his testimony. But don't stop there. Jesus is like, okay, fine. You need more to testify of me? How about none other, verse 33 of chapter 5, than John the Baptist? John the Baptist is the one who was given the responsibility of preparing the way for the Lord. He was laying the groundwork. So right there in that list, John the Baptist. How about the works that Jesus did in verse 36 of chapter 5? So we already listed the signs that are given. Those are the, those are the works that Jesus did. They testified to the fact that he's the Son of God. Wow, what can you do to prove that you're the Son of God? Boom, I don't do a, a, you know, a pony dance right here. I'm not doing this to satisfy you. I am working the works of the one who sent me. And oh, by the way, it just so happens that these things testify of me that I am the Son of God. So the works, verse, 33, uh, verse 36. Well, none other than if, if Jesus is going to testify of it, the Father also testifies according to chapter 5, verse 37. And the Father does that several different ways. He does that at Jesus' baptism when he identifies Jesus as his son in whom he is well pleased. He identifies that at the Mount of Transfiguration where he identifies Jesus not only as his son, but he says, hear him in deference to both Moses and Elijah. So Jesus totally, totally identified by the Father. In fact, there's actually a moment where people hear the Father speak, not really one of those grand moments, but just kind of a setting back. Father says, I'm glorified by you. I glorify you, you glorify me. We're all together in this. I love that. How the Father in heaven testifies of his own son, his own program, right, of the salvation of men. And then the very last one in chapter 5 at verse 39 are the scriptures. The scriptures give testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, all of the Old Testament scriptures are designed with a very specific purpose of pointing to Jesus. And so here in that text, he just simply lists them, the scriptures, as being a place of, of contact, a point by which a person could read those things and come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the witness or the testimony of the scriptures. And then in chapter 15, uh, these two will be in verse 26 and then verse 27. The first is the Spirit, you know, the Holy Spirit testifying. We saw his greatest work of that testimony after Jesus is resurrected from the dead and goes to be with the Father. When the church is growing and expanding in the world, it is being driven and motivating by the work of the Spirit. And in all of that, he does not glorify himself, but he identifies Jesus again and again and again as the Son of God. And then the final uh, grouping of those things that give testimony, verse 27, chapter 15, are the disciples. 
uh, ultimately the apostles. Their responsibility was to spend time with Jesus, to witness all the things that he said, all the things that he did, the testimony of all these other extraneous things, to gather up all of that evidence and then to go out into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. They could testify from their own witness, their own experience, that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, so those are, those are just briefly two of the areas that you and I, over the course of our study, are going to examine in the book. The final of these is the idea of life. So how, how is life in Jesus different from life generally? Do you know? Typically, life generally is just existence, right? They say, of course they haven't, but they say, we're looking for life on another planet. What are they looking for? They're looking to see evidence that it exists. That's the thing, okay? We say, oh, we went to the Antarctic. Everything's supposed to be dead because it's so cold, but we found some microbes that are alive, you can't carry on a conversation with those microbes. We just simply say they exist. Are you good with that? Just exist. If you just exist, then one day you know what you will do? Not exist. And then that'll be that. It won't matter. That is not what Jesus came to do. To see that we exist. Now, is Jesus part of our existence? <laughs> Absolutely. Jesus is, is the creator of things. There's no doubt about that. So, absolutely, existence is important. But let's key on this verse, John 10, verse 10. And this is actually, you know, in the midst of Jesus' talking about sheep, being the door of the sheep, and being the good shepherd. Right there in the midst of all that, Jesus says... The thief doesn't come but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The abundant life. Not just existence, but that which transcends simply existing. Life in the Father. Life as a result of our relationship with Jesus. Okay, so let's, let's take this, as we're thinking about how we're going to lay this out, let's take this a step further because John goes to a lot of trouble to present Jesus to us. Jesus is two things, primarily. He is divine and he is human. He doesn't wait for us to kind of get around to it and maybe just come to that conclusion on our own. Actually, the book of John leads off with that fact. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Right there is a capsule of the whole work of Jesus. He came to be a light to those who are in darkness. If you have seen the light, then you have seen Jesus. But many in Jesus' own time could not perceive the light because of the greatness of the darkness that they were in. So Jesus' mission, sent here by God the Father himself, was in order to enlighten men, to bring them to the light. 
so that they could have what we already noticed, that abundant life. But not only was he going to do it as divine, he's also going to do it in human form. Sometimes you'll hear the statement that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. Literally, that means in the flesh. He's the Son of God in the flesh. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus manifesting the Father in the life that He lived. You say, well, He only lived three and a half years. Yeah, but in the course of that life, He created a condition by which all men could be saved. And that is what the whole thing is about. So we've got Jesus divine. We've got him uh, human. He was always interested in people. So we see all the miracles that he's doing. And it's interesting to me, and you don't have to sit down and read these, although as you're reading through the course, you might just take note of it, that there are 27 different personal conversations that Jesus has with people. Some of them are very lengthy. Some of them are just in a moment of time. But Jesus spent the time to care for people. I'm trying to be very diligent about watching this clock. Is it time to stop? I think it's 22. All right. Thank you so much for your attention. What we are going to do over the course of these weeks is break all that stuff down. We're going to look specifically at all those verses and chapters that I shared with you that demonstrate beyond the shadow of the doubt that Jesus is the Son of God. And then at the end of that study, we will uh, see all of the statements that Jesus says He is that fulfills every need that we might potentially have. Okay, so we're going to take a break here and get ready for our devotional. Again, thanks for your attention. Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my
get started tonight if we can please it's always encouraging to assemble together like we are tonight and to hear all the chatter that's going on see the talking that's going on it's it's just an encouraging thing uh, to come together like we are tonight and then we get to study God's word and grow spiritually from that and we're just honored to have all of you uh, here tonight especially if you are visiting with us. Thank you for coming our way. I have a few announcements that I want to make tonight. First of all, uh, be sure and check the bulletin and get the bulletin tonight before you leave. Uh, that will have a, an update on our sick, and we need to remember those that are not here because of COVID 
or because of other kinds of sicknesses, and we need to try to do what we can uh, to encourage those. We want to express our deepest sympathy to the family of Rodney Goldstein, who passed from this life on Tuesday. Of course, Rodney is Sandy Bonham's brother. Uh, visitation is going to be with the family on Saturday at 10 a.m. at Kessler Funeral Home in Baldwin. The funeral will follow at 11. Now, please pay close attention to this. Uh, we're going to be providing a meal uh, for the Goldstein family here at our church building. And uh, there is a list back in the foyer for you to sign if you can bring food. So please uh, do that. It would be very helpful if you could do that before you leave tonight. So please remember that. We also want to extend our sympathy to Mary Alice Coates of the death of her sister-in-law, Rachel Glover. Uh, this is also Todd Sweeney's aunt. Uh, the funeral for Grady Wigington uh, who was an elder for many years at the Hillcrest Church in Baldwin. It's going to be Saturday afternoon at 2 o'clock at Walter's Funeral Home in Baldwin. And, of course, there'll be a period of visitation beginning at noon. Uh, of course, we want to keep in mind in our prayers tomorrow morning. It's going to be very important in the lives of uh, the forests, especially uh, Kyle and Casey Wigington. Uh, are scheduled to enter the hospital in the morning, and uh, she is going to have a C-section. Eleanor Ruth Wigington uh, will be born uh, in the morning at Huntsville Hospital. So let's please remember that in our prayers, the doctors that will be taking care of that. And of course, uh, Ken and, uh, Ken and uh, Anita are uh, taking care of the little one as well. So there's just a lot going on, and we want to pray for that situation. Also, everyone is invited to a wedding shower in honor of Brandon Hancock and Leah Isbell this coming sun Sunday, February the 6th, from 1 until 3, and that'll be in the Annex. That's all the announcements that I have tonight. Our singing is going to be led by Brother Anthony Acock and Cole Sweeney. At the appropriate time, we'll dismiss us in prayer. would mark your hymn books to number 927 that would be the song of encouragement 927 then turn to number 895 895 I'd like to stay here
Jesus was the only preacher that could make his congregation smaller with his sermons. You know, our Lord would have very large crowds following him. We think about people who are very famous today and people who are very popular that would have a large following wherever they might go, but nothing today could compare to the people that followed Jesus. Great crowds continually pressed upon him, unlike anything the world has seen before. And so many people would love to have that kind of a following. But then all of a sudden, Jesus would say something like, unless you deny your father and your mother and your own life also, you cannot be my disciple. And then all of a sudden, the crowds would diminish. You know, many people would turn and and walk with Jesus no more because of the kinds of things he taught. Now, why was that the case? Well, because Jesus never let the crowd control the truth. You know, if you are diagnosed with a disease, you don't want the doctor to spare your feelings, do you? You don't want the doctor to tell you a lie. You want the doctor to tell you the truth because you want to get the problem fixed. You know, the old saying, take two aspirins and call me in the morning simply doesn't work if you've got maybe cancer or some other disease. And so we need to realize that the truth hurts. But you see, just like some kind of disease, you really have to hear about your problem in order to address it. You know, we're faced today with a world that's lost in sin. And we have to make people to see and to understand the, the truth of their situation. But you know, the truth hurts. And I want to encourage you to never run away from the truth, but instead always run toward it because it could save your life and it will ultimately save your soul. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. How we need to love truth. How we need to always embrace the truth. And yea, even demand that the truth be taught, no matter how unpopular it might be. Tonight, we're going to extend the Savior's invitation. And if you're here tonight and you're outside of Christ, you need to know the truth of your situation. You're lost. You're without hope in this world. And yet that all can change if you'll make the decision, even tonight, to render obedience to the gospel. Demonstrate your faith that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, by repenting of your sins, confessing his name, that he is the Son of God, and then tonight be immersed in water. The purpose of that baptism is to wash away all your past sins. The Lord will then add you to his church. And so tonight, if you need to respond to Heaven's invitation, we invite you to come now while we stand and sing. Jesus, wait.
Bow with me. Dear Father in heaven above, Lord, thank you for allowing us to come out here and have another time to worship you and learn more about you, Lord. And just thank you for all the many blessings you give us each and every day. And please be with all those who are sick and those who are dealing with COVID right now, Lord, please help them with their time of need. And please be with those who have lost loved ones and please watch over them and comfort them. And just please help us to go out the rest of this week and be shining examples to you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.